Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome everyone, Brendan here with Mark. Funnily enough, it's the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. Now, we haven't spoken about the website for a while, Mark. Vet, maybe we did it last week, but who knows. Um, vetgurus.com. If you haven't been there, please go there. Poke around, look around. Think about helping us out, throwing us a bone as we talk about it, um, giving us the equivalent of a cup of coffee, whatever that may be in your municipality. And go to patreon.com via vetgurus.com and... Send us a couple of dollars to help support us and pay for the pay for the hosting, pay for the software program we use to record it, pay for Mark to to get up in the morning because he doesn't get up unless he's paid an inordinate amount of money. How are you, Mark? I've just cashed that check, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm great. Well, I te- I've been really busy. We've got some really like you know you know how it is you go through states where there's lots of of um of surgery and then for a while you, you've got lots of medical cases and we're just going through a state of very interesting surgeries at the moment so yeah it's been oh tell me about one of those well i'll tell you about two quickly because we're trying to be punchy the first one was a um a very interesting um uh, turtle shell case uh um, cracked shell that we often see those and just um working to uh have an excellent anesthetic and ventilate the animal well just went really it was an old schmicko case and the shell came back together really well didn't have damage to the coelom so it was all good and we've got um uh, we're doing an increasing number of uh, we do D6 birds on a regular basis, but that's, we're just going through a little bit of a spike in those cases too. And it's nice to do them end on end, you know. You, you, you know the procedure. You might do it once in a while. Um, and there's always just a bit of recall you've got to do. But when you do them end on end, you start to become familiar and just do them a bit quicker and smoother and you're happier about doing them, Brendan. And you have a bit of a run, don't you? Like you've mentioned, and we've sort of had the same with certain things. I mean, we're always doing dentals, especially rabbit dentals and guinea pig dentals, but um, desexins and ovariectomies in guinea pigs has been a bit of a run on them lately, Mark. And yeah, you sort of you get in the groove, don't you? you get in the groove, and I tell you what, when living living in the moment, Mark, and that's my philosophy at the moment trying to live in the moment and enjoying the day enjoying what you're doing and the fact that hey you've got your your fingers inside a guinea pig um what more could you want mark it's we're pretty lucky very what lucky more could you want perhaps the fingers in the pie um which you've got the fingers in lots of pies haven't you mark um, from the sand of things of things Yes, yes. All the time changes. Yes, you need pull your finger out. I'm constantly telling you, Mark, pull your finger out. Well, I'm going to ju- enough chit chat. I'm going to jump into. <laughs> I'm going to jump off. into my one and only news story, Mark. And um, I found this one quite fascinating about um, the year of 2020 and how the pandemic affected 
<laughs> how Americans spent time in quarantine, Mark. Um, and it was an article from oh, – it was published on yahoo.com, but um, it was a bit of a list, Mark, and I like a bit of a list. Um, keep, sort of guy. Keeping it bit of, bit simple. Keep, you know, it, 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 it appeals to my brain, Mark, um, um, clear and concise. And uh, they had two lists here. Um, um, one was from Pet Poison Helpline uh, where they saw a massive uptick in calls about household pet toxins. So this article is about um, the top ten poisons reveal, revealed um, and how Americans spend their time in quarantine as, as a result. Um, so for the Pet Poison Helpline, I'll just – go through them i'll just um, quickly run through them the list of toxins yielding the biggest increasing calls number one yeast mark and we'll talk about it in a second number two is related to number one i think bread dough um brewed coffee number three wine cocktails art supplies cleaning products paint coffee grounds and the perennial one number 10 marijuana Mark, um, yeast, uh, 390% increased on the calls for yeast poisons or toxicities in, in animals. They haven't broken it down into into species there. Um, bread dough, 254% increase, um, going down to number 10. Marijuana, 80% increasing calls regarding marijuana um, poisons or toxicity. Um, and just jumping down to the other list that they had, um, they had a list from the uh, Animal Poison Control Centre, the APCC, um, and they saw a similar uptick on their calls. Um, and they they're pretty amazing numbers here, Mark. The Control Centre received calls for approximately 370,500 animals in 2020, so 370,000 calls, Mark, which is a 13% increase on the previous year, which you'd expect um, during the pandemic that people are... Bought off their brain, so what do they do? They feed something to their dogs they shouldn't, and then they call the information line about it. So their top ten was um, number one over counter medications, then human prescription medications, food. Gee, that's a pretty broad one for number three. Cho- yeah, chocolate, um, plants, both indoor and outdoor, household toxins, including paint, rodenticides, and number eight veterinary products, number nine, insecticide, and number 10, garden products. So I wonder what that one is, Mark, um, the, the dog eating the, the, the shovel? Uh, <laughs> the dog um, ingesting the plant pot? The dog ingesting the wheelbarrow? What what does that mean, the, the, the garden products? It's fertiliser. It's prills. You know those the, the little round balls? Yes, yes. The dogs love them. They... They like a bit of compost and, and variations on that, don't they? And it's a bit tricky. We've been doing it, as you know. We've been trying to sort of tidy up the garden a bit, and it's always a bit of a balance, isn't it, when you're laying down a bit of manure or a bit of um, blood and bone or a bit of um, compost or fertiliser, especially if you go for the premium fertiliser, Mark. Um, I think it's quite tasty for the dog. So we end up covering the, the little... Um, vegetable patch um, that's had the fertiliser or the soil put on it with, I just put the rakes, garden rakes on there and a couple of bricks on there and um, just over time slowly decrease those um, so they have less access to it as the plants take over, Mark, and hope that I don't head home one day and my wife isn't talking to me because one of the dogs have dug up the plants. Well, I thought, did you say rakes and bricks? 
Yeah, we put. I've got some paver bricks, and they seem to work quite well. They're pretty damn ugly. I just sort of spaced them out over over the new topsoil I've put down, or the manure, and um, it keeps them off there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. So that's my news story, Mark. Um, so is there anything? Um, it's just earth shattering in that. Um, there's no news. Like it's entirely predictable that. The thousands of people making sourdough at home during the pandemic, and brewing a coffee while they make it, yes, and drinking a wine, yeah. and having a cocktail while they're painting a picture, yes, uh, it's, it's um, entirely. And we'll link to this article on our website for the um, for this particular episode. So that's my news story, Mark. What have you got? Well, it's it's um completely unsegwayable. My 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 uh, story talks about um. Uh, I suppose it's, uh, in my mind, it's a philosophical one. <laughs> it's um, where do we look next for the uh, things we're going to consume? Um, and, you know, there's some people who, who, are, who are literally planning to mine minerals on the moon or other planets, um, but there is a more proximate um, a potential source and Mining agencies are now promising to minimise the harm that they will do to ocean ecosystems if they aggressively mine the ocean floor. Um, I think that um, I, I, I think you can't trust them, Brendan. That's my tip. My tip is that if we allow them to send machines um, to the bottom of the ocean to uh, mine the sediment, um, bad things will happen. And not least of which will be that we don't understand how a lot of those trace elements that they'll be mining, um, things like lithium for batteries, things like, what are some of the other ones they've listed? Um, they've listed um, toothpaste. <laughs> no, toothpaste got to mention because um, they were making a list of things that um, require things to minerals i don't i just prefer i don't know just can't can't we use a little bit less and recycle some of the stuff we do use just use a bit of sand <laughs> to brush your teeth mark a bit of grit. you're gonna mine that from the beach anyway <laughs> that's true yeah i think one of the concerns i'd have with that mining is that how do you monitor that you know especially they're talking about deep sea mining aren't they here with um greater than what 200 Meters, was it yeah, something like that? But um, yeah, um, so um, even if it's independent organisations, gee, have they got the gear to head down two hundred plus meters to to look at what they're mining? Probably not. Um, so I think they they'd be relying on honesty, I suppose. Um, if if there is such a thing for the miners to to say, look, we are damaging things down there, and we are doing the right thing. And there's a pretty good graphic in this article, isn't there, Mark? I like a good a good picture. Um, that talks about all the potential harmful effects of it. But what do you do, Mark? We need to we need to less humans, I suppose, is what you're going to say, aren't you? Um, we need to consume. We need to live. We need to eat. We need to um, um, supply our our calorific and other needs, our macro and our micronutrients. So, so what's the answer, Mark? I don't know. Insects. What I was going to say. Farming. Was, I think there's lots of things we can do now. Like we don't, you know, for example, underarm deodorant. 
a massive amount of plastic and chemicals goes into underarm deodorant. And I'm sure that, um, that we can get around that much more easily. We don't need all those resources poured into that particular um, process. And there's a million things we do as humans that, that, that can be done better. We've just got to choose to do it. It will be a cost. I'm not saying it won't cost. But the cost of not doing it, which will be paid in the future, will be much greater, Brendan. And as you know, I'm wearing a Hessian sack at the moment, and that's all I tend to wear when I'm at home, Mark, to try and minimise my impact on the planet. And it's quite versatile. Who needs a Snuggie or all variations on them when you can just cut a hole in the top of a Hessian sack and it's a dress, it's a coat, it, it's, um, you know, it doesn't matter what gender you are or what spectrum you are, it, it, it works, Mark. So that's, 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 that's my contribution. We talked about your um, uh, computer camera and the filter it has when it does make that look very good. Very sparkly, Mark, very sparkly. Okay, so, don't, well, that's a bit of a depressing story there, Mark. Don't mind the ocean. That's my tip, Brendan. Yes, don't breed is my tip. <laughs> Less humans, I think, is the answer. And and just being a bit more mindful, as you say, of, of what we use and how we can minimise our impact as usual. Um, there's no segue to the next bit, which is our main story, Mark. I think we're going to jump into our main story, which is me, as usual, quizzing you on a particular topic. And I'd be very curious as why you selected this topic. So the topic this week is swan medicine, Mark, swan medicine. So my first question or questions are, what is a swan? <laughs> and why do you want to talk about swan medicine? Do you see many of these in practice as, as pets, as wild bit of both. swans? A bit of both, Brendan. We do have a number of clients uh, who um, you know wildlife parts and whatever that have swans. We um, do deal with uh, a number of swans end up with wildlife carers and don't need to be rehabilitated and also uh, um, uh, genuine wild animals that are injured before they get to wildlife carers. We've got to deal with those guys. So, so yeah, we get to see quite a few of our native black swan and I think, and I think probably one of the reasons why you've put it on the list of of topics is that there are some completely different things about dealing with um, a species of bird like this um, compared with the more commonly seen ones. Um, and I think that vets who aren't used to seeing swans are be a bit intimidated, Mark, about um, everything from how, how the hell do you handle this, um, especially if we've got one of the largest species of swans, how the hell do we handle or, or examine this animal or sedate or anaesthetise it, um, let alone diagnose um, what's going on with it. Um, and I expect that you're going to also talk about a couple of potential conditions that are more commonly um, encountered in them. Um, so let's go back to the first first thing. Um, you know, What's your tips and tricks about how to handle them? How do you do that examination on them? Well, the first thing I always say to people about swans is that um, they have a bit of a two-phase um, behaviour scheme. They, for the large part, they're pretty shy and pretty happy to, um, you know, to do the normal, just escape if possible, and um, 
get away from someone. So their behaviour is predictable in that it's aversive. They try and get away. But for periods of time, if they're reproductively active, if they're backed into a corner or if they're overly humanised, they can be a little bit um, vigorous and violent. And they are big birds. You said that they can be intimidating. And that's certainly the case. They're, they're, you know, um, a decent size and they have a decent wingspan, nearly a metre and a half. And they are prone to, um, like, flapping at you with their head extended and, and uh, hitting you with the, the, um, the effect, you know, the analogue of their wrist, which is quite bony, and it can, they can really hurt. So being prepared for um, some offensive behaviour and being ready to deal with that is a good thing. Um, generally, hand, once you've got them handled, though, they're, they're uh, relatively good to work with, but it's just that getting something over the top of them, a towel, a big blanket, um, and generally applying pressure to the dorsal surface, wrapping their wings up so they can't get you. Oftentimes, many I have no trouble when I when I pick them up. I reach around them and support their legs. They all weigh, you know, something like five or six kilos, so they're not overly difficult to hold for a while. Get your your arm over the top of them, around them, and under their feet. Lots of people like to point their head behind them in the in the thought that. If you have that long neck pointing away from you, that you're less likely to get nibbled around the face and neck. But um, most of the time, I can use my left. If I hold the bird's way with my right hand, I can guide the head with the left hand. And I sort of like to know where it is, not have it wiggling out behind me. So different people have different ways of picking them up. And I think the keep it simple method of the swan burrito, as far as the body goes, um, with a towel or a blanket, etc., is is a, is a good method there. Yeah. And that classic, it's that I can remember being <laughs> shown a picture of the the swan swan's head and neck pointing backwards with it tucked under your arm. Um, it's a bit of a classic one. I, I think I even got shown that at university way back when the dark ages, Mark, when we went to uni. That um, I think that we were all sort of taught that was a technique to to handle or to transport swans with them facing backwards. Um, so, yeah. So once you've um, grabbed onto that swan or, and gently um, um, restraining it so it doesn't hurt itself and it doesn't hurt you, um, what um, what are the differences um, or, or the similarities with that initial exam with them that you'd, you'd like to point out? Well, they, they belong to... You know the same family as uh, most of our waterfowl, the ants, the um, anseriformes, and um, they um, that when you're doing your physical exam on them, um, one of the things that uh, that I find to be a little bit difficult is that um, they they have a very volatile heart rate and respiratory rate, and so I do want to hear. I, wa- I whack the stethoscope on them and I try and auscultate their whole. Uh, Sealum to make sure I can hear all of the air sacs. Um, but the noise, the rate of noise production, the fact they get excited and the heart rate can jump, makes it not uh, particularly useful to whack out a particular number and say whether that's normal or not. It is a response to circumstance. As they get excited and they feel more threatened and restrained, the heart rate and respiratory rate are likely to jump up significantly. Um, and, you know, they... Um, and when they, they feel a little bit more subdued and calm, um, they're, they're much more likely to breathe a little bit less. <laughs> so 
if you did, so how often would you anaesthetize them or sedate them? Um, you mentioned that you're worried about that heart rate and you're worried about them potentially stressing out there. So do you more commonly and not just gas them down or not? And how easy are they to gas down with that long neck? Is it a problematic for that, for doing that or not? We generally give them a little dose of midazolam to take the edge off them before we uh, whack a mask over their face and uh, anaesthetize them. Um, I find that they're more likely, I suppose, because they're more alert, more conscious, they're more likely to breath hold and that um, makes it a little bit difficult to mask them down. And a touch of midazolam, um, often uh, administered intranasally, um, that can be just dribbled into the nares and is absorbed through the mucosa of the nares. And, uh, and then once the birds are a little bit uh, less edgy, um, you can whack a mask on them. And, and it is often very useful to do because um, many of the birds we'll be looking at will involve taking x-rays or restraining sufficiently that we can draw blood. We do want to do those additional diagnostics. So, um, yeah, many of them, once we get past that first stage, we're looking at knocking them out. So you mentioned taking blood. So where do we do that? What's different with taking blood and is it easy from a swan? It is easy um, and it has nothing to do with the long neck. You've got to go down to the... the um, there are several large vessels, uh, several large veins on the um, on the, the uh, legs. Um, they're relatively easy to visualise, um, and it's uh, it's not a huge problem to uh, get those uh, the median. Um, I think it's the median tarsal vein. Um, it sticks out just as it goes over the joint, and it's relatively easy to get blood from that point. Can you, you mentioned the neck and not sort of going there, but how easy is it to visualise or palpate or see the jugular in them if you do want to play around in that region? My advice is don't. And the the reason I give you that advice is that um, unlike our uh, wonderful, more commonly seen birds, parrots and whatnot, that have apterous regions in that part of their body. So they have areas without feathers. So you can wet the feathers down, separate them, and get a clear view of the skin. Um, all our ducks are completely covered with not only their contour feathers, but dense layers of um, downy feathers underneath to maintain their uh, waterproof nature. And, um, and you just can't get through that, that like, there's no apterous region, so don't go fishing around for the jugular is my tip. Noted. Now, a couple of common conditions. So what do you see these for, um, both both the pet ones and the wild ones? What, 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 you know, let's run off maybe quickly three or four or five well, conditions you see them it's, for. Um, the feet, Brandon, the feet. We get bumblefoot in these birds. They're heavy set. And particularly once, you know, in the wild, they spend an inordinate amount of time in the water. If they are um, spending even just a marginal amount of um, additional time on the land, that extra pressure is going to start to cause areas of um, uh, loss of blood flow and then avascular necrosis, which ends up being bumblefoot in these birds. And it's much like... It's very important to examine the feet regularly because um, if the, if we can if it if it starts to develop once it's significantly developed it's hard to do something about it 
it's expensive and complicated and takes many anesthetics. So monitoring it and changing husbandry practices early is critically important. Bumblefoot is something we see all the time. Oh, Brendan, you've gone from me. Oh, you're still muted. And we, and we, and we know how difficult we know how difficult bumblefoot can be to deal with, and we've covered that with some of the other species. And um, I think we'll cover it again in birds at some stage as well. So, what else do we see in these swannies, Mark? Um, we see uh, botulism. Um, botulism. It's a little bit of a surprising thing in um, uh, in swans because they're um, they're uh, um, they feed on. Um, microscopic small pieces of plant material mainly and they intake they do get some intake of uh, animal material um, but um, most of the time they must uh, these birds must disturb some little pocket of anaerobic uh, um, environment in the floor of the water water course they're in um, and release um, material that contains the botulinum toxin and, and then we see a bird that has um, uh, that's significantly paralysed and has a flaccid neck. Many of these birds, if they do get to that point, will die. Um, and we see it in, in a few water bird species, pelicans and swans. Um, but a lot of them will just have a completely flaccid neck, um, be unable to eat or drink uh, without intensive care. Um, and so they'll often be... Um, and they might take two or three weeks of that intensive care, but we do see a few of these birds end up with botulism. Angel wing. Um, angel wings a uh, growth abnormality um, that has to do with yeah <laughs> it's not when you jump in the snow and wing you dance on the <laughs> um, no um, it, it's a condition where the the excessive protein fed to uh, young water birds results in premature uh, growth of the feathers the weight of the feathers um, uh, the, the bones in the wings are not prepared to cope with that weight and uh, the wings sort of half twist over forward and as a consequence the growing flight feathers poke out a little bit like angel wings. It's a bad thing to have to do. In the early stages because it's the weight of the feathers and um, the bones are still soft, um, if they're um, bandaged, splintered in place at a very early stage, you can correct that growth deformity. But once it's advanced to a certain point where the bones are beginning to harden, um, uh, it's gone past the point where uh, it can be corrected and um, uh, without surgical intervention. Um, and, uh, and often those birds are, are candidates for euthanasia because they won't be able to fly and they constantly traumatise those uh, ends of the wings that are unable to be folded up normally. Yep. So, any others off the top of your head? Off the top of my head, off my written list here. One of the rare cases where I've done some preparation for a punchy little podcast. <laughs> um, uh, probably the other one. I there's two others I could I regularly see, um, and I think one of them we'll often have um, uh, people who um, disturb a nest, for example, and um, you know the, the swans have nested in a cow paddock and. Um, in the wet part of the cow paddock and then they're disturbed and the swans move away leaving eggs and um, people will hatch them but that period of time where the temperature is inappropriate will regularly lead to um, young swans having um, inappropriate yolk sac uh, absorption and, and retained and infected yolk sac so that's something you always look out for with young swans particularly if they've been incubated 
And the one, the other one we see quite regularly is a common one with most of the water birds is aspergillosis. Um, it's a bit of a paradox to me that they live in a, uh, you know, I can understand penguins who get asper because they they are not, you know, they're not familiar with that uh, organism, and so uh, being naive to it, it, aspergillosis is a common thing that uh, gives penguins problems. But a lot of our water birds, particularly the um, the more unusual ones, the one less robust ones, I suppose, um, ones that go through a period of time where they're immune suppressed, if they're, for some reason their cortisol rises, they will be very much exposed to the spores and end up with lawns of mould on the air sacs inside them. And they cope really well up until a particular point. It's a real threshold phenomenon. It's probably something we see more commonly at post-mortem, uh, but it's always worth being aware that... Uh, Swans that are having difficulty breathing, you have to rule out aspergillosis. Not much good news there with those conditions, <laughs> but some certainly some challenging um, things to consider with swans, Mark. Um, my, my final sort of question is, um, you mentioned about some of these may need long-term care, for instance, those botulism cases. Um how do we go about doing that? Um, you know, it, it, won't it be a bit of a challenge to both house this animal and also to provide supplemental nutrition to it? Um, and how do you deal with that case where it's got a bit of a long neck, hasn't it? And it's got a bit of a floppy neck with that particular condition. So, how do you how do you how do you nurse it? Carefully, um, and you do <laughs> you have to be um. Uh, um conscious of the fact that um, having that um, limber floppy neck means that um, even if you've gotten the the nutrition very well down the digestive tract um, gravity if the head flops down um, gravity will allow it to return you know upward and then you're dealing with aspiration pneumonia um, so the first there's three I suppose comments to make the first one is um, very careful nursing care and, and orientation create using um, uh, maybe um, some cardboard boxes, some way to support the bird so that it sits in a relatively normal position. And often these birds um, will rest if you can arrange them with towels and boxes in a, in a relatively normal swan-like position. They'll remain in that position. So um, that's definitely worth trying. Uh, spending some time doing we do uh, definitely use long feeding tubes to get uh, you know you don't just want to plonk the food um, in the, the mouth and trust the the um, gravity and the less than usual contractions to get it to the right place um, but we also have at times plucked a bunch of those feathers which uh, allow us uh, which generally block us having access to the neck and placing a um uh, um, an esophageal feeding tube through the wall of the um, the neck close to the body so that we can uh, um, administer that food, make sure that we know it hasn't even gone up anywhere near the mouth or airways and get it right into the proventriculus. You have hit the, na the nail on the head with the big hammer, though. Um, you can tell by our discussions that it is a... Uh, um, botulism is an intensive care... Um, you know, it's not, and, and it's long, a long time. Some birds will be, 
it would regularly be the case we have some recovery at two or three weeks, but some of these birds will take six weeks of intensive care before they're um, return to normal strength and of course complications can happen even with the best nursing care yes hard work mark hard work and tell me what the last one that came into your clinic had did it have one of these conditions or something completely different <laughs> it had something completely different it had just a significant laceration on its leg it was probably we suspect it was a dog or a fox that had grabbed it and the swan was big enough that it could give it a bit of a belt and the animal probably ran away, but it a significant contusion. They sew up really well to their good surgical patients once you get them anaesthetised and a few sutures and um, uh, light dressing and the bird was great, Brendan. Dr Mark saves the day again. And looks like Mr... Outro has already started, Mark, so we'll um, talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.